Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 280, which is an interview I had recently with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who's been on the programme many times in the past, this time for an interview on the situation in Ukraine. Now, just a few notes before we get on with that today. Number one, this, I'm hoping, will be the first in a short series of interviews stroke conversations on this particular subject, because I am personally not fully sure what's going on with this crisis, so it will be good to get the opinions of various different guests. Obviously, I do have my opinions, which I hope are open to modification as I find out more. I am, for example, not currently persuaded that the invasion by Russia was morally justified. Um, I think war has to be an absolute last resort if it's ever justified and i'm not sure that that's the case here now it may be but i'm not currently convinced and actually as i said to dr roberts with these interviews my intention is less to concentrate on moral questions than it is on simply trying to understand why this has happened what is the historical geographical and political background to what has actually taken place in short it is happening I don't like it, but there's nothing I can do about it. But what I can do is to try to understand how it is that the world has come to this place. So all that to say, I have many ongoing questions about this Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it will be good to sample the different opinions of various guests as and when I'm able to secure their time to come on the programme. Next up, I'm hoping, will be the lawyer and university lecturer Adyinka Mackinday, who has also appeared on the programme a number of times in the past, so that, I'm hoping, will be number two in this short series. Uh, the second thing is, with this particular interview, please note that it took place several days ago. I haven't been able to get around to posting it until today, so that's just the way things go sometimes. Please do bear that in mind that not everything that is said will be bang up to date. Number three, this interview takes the form, uh, which was agreed with my guest, um, of an opening statement by my guest, which lasts about 20 minutes, I think, um, in which he puts his position, after which I launch into questions responding to what he said, and the whole thing uh, essentially shifts from statement to interview and then more like conversation towards the end. And I may do that with other programs in this series. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure at the moment. And the purpose is, of course, simply to sample my guest's general view and then go into more detail and challenge as it goes on. And any of you who've been listening for a long time will know that I really do quite like the devil's advocate style of questioning, which does tend to get under my guest's skin, but I think that works to bring out the views and passion of the person I'm speaking to. So I think that's all I need to say for now. Without more ado, therefore, here is my fairly recent interview with Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased to welcome back to the programme Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, who we haven't spoken to for, I think it's three or four years now, um, possibly the last time we connected was 2018, something like that. So it is good to be speaking with him once again on TMR. Dr. Roberts, as nearly all of you know, I'm quite sure, uh, enjoyed a career in academia, journalism, business and public service, held many senior academic positions in universities, was an associate editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal, was appointed by US President Reagan as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy during Reagan's first term in office, after which he was a consultant to the US Department of Defense and the US Department of Commerce. So 
quite a lot of work gone on there, Dr. Roberts. It's good to be speaking to you once again after such a long time. Yes, it really is. Um, I've missed you, Julian. <laughs> I've missed you as well. It is, it is wonderful to be speaking with you. So thank you very much indeed for coming on again. Now, my first question to you is a very informal one, really, as it has been such a long time, is how have you been keeping, especially during this so-called pandemic period? <laughs> well, you know, Julian, I was, I was lucky. I lived in the state of Florida, and we had a three-week lockdown the initial year, and the governor realized it was all hokum, and he banned <laughs> all lockdowns. He banned all mandatory vaccination. He banned any mask mandates, oh. and so I have continued to live as a free citizen, probably only people in Florida among the entire free world have been able to live as free people during the, the COVID scam. Um, I regard the whole COVID thing as an orchestrated uh, scheme uh, to sell vaccines and to erode civil liberties. And that's the way the governor of Florida saw it. So we didn't have to put up with it. Well, that, that's wonderful. You may well be right about that as well. Uh, yeah, we've been, we haven't been perhaps the most fortunate in the world here, but by no means the worst in the world here. But I must admit, there were moments when I thought we were going to edge towards mandatory vaccination across the population. That was hinted at by our Prime Minister at one point. Thankfully, didn't come to anything, thanks uh, to Omicron. Anyway, uh, that is not what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be discussing this very concerning situation in Ukraine following Russia's invasion of that country on 24th February. Now, we have discussed with you about Ukraine in the past. I think it was back in 2014, around the time of the Maidan coup. And um, we've also discussed with you about Russia and its extremely rocky relationship with the US and its allies. So I thought it would be really good to get your views about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. But also to get from you some vital historical and geopolitical background, because if we are listening to the, I'm calling it these days, the dinosaur media, if we're listening to that, then by and large, we're being fed a narrative that's pretty much devoid of historical, geographical and political context, as if it all just happened out of thin air. You know, it's unprovoked. Putin just wants to resurrect the Russian Empire. He's the new Hitler, which, of course, is one dimensionally absurd. So can you please explain to us some of this background? It didn't just all happen in a vacuum, did it? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, it didn't. Uh... It's um, the result of the intentional uh, conscious uh, policy of Washington. Um, it began when the um, Soviet Union collapsed. And Washington insisted that many historic elements of Russia be broken off and become new countries, independent countries. For example, Ukraine had been part of Russia for centuries. But uh, it was broken off. I mean, the Yeltsin government was uh, very uh, weak and uh, corrupt. And uh, Ukraine was broken off. And uh, for the first time, it became a country in 1991. So it's a country that's roughly uh, 31, 32 years old. Now, the next thing that happened was the United States uh, spent $5 billion, according to uh, Victoria Newland, who at the time she announced this was the Assistant Secretary of State for Russian Affairs, spent $5 billion developing organizations within Ukraine, um, resurrecting the Bandera pro-Nazi forces, 
creating um, a system for a color revolution because the existing president had uh, refused our entreaties to break relations with Russia and so on and had to be uh, overthrown. And so that's what was accomplished in 2014 with the maiden, they called the maiden revolution. This was uh, uh, an overthrow of the Ukrainian elected government that was on good terms with Russia and its replacement uh, with the American stooge, which uh, we have had stooges there ever since. So that's the uh, origin of how this happened. Now, when the Maiden Revolution occurred and the neo-Nazi elements uh, arose, they formed militias. They've been independent of the government. They have been under the guidance of American intelligence and trained. And what happened, they began assaulting uh, the Russian population of eastern Ukraine. And these assaults on people were pretty brutal. And then the American-installed government in Ukraine uh, ruled that the Russian language could no longer be used and and so on. And the uh, Donbass region of Ukraine, which is the, the eastern part, which was formerly part of the Russian nation itself. Um, Donbass, like Crimea, are historically parts of Russia that were placed into Ukraine by the communist leadership during the Soviet era, because from the standpoint of the Soviet leaders, uh, it was all one country, the Soviet Union. And Russia was one uh, province and Ukraine was another province. And so it didn't really make any difference. But that's how Crimea and Donbass region of currently uh, Ukraine became associated with Ukraine. They're actually historically parts of Russia. So those people in the in Crimea, we know they voted to uh, reunite with Russia, and the Russians accepted it uh, in order to save their naval base on the Black Sea, which was in Crimea. The Donbass Russians made the same vote. They voted to be reunited with Russia, and the Russians did not accept it. Uh, why? I know of two reasons. One, they didn't want to confirm the Western propaganda that uh, Putin was rebuilding the Soviet empire by taking another chunk of the new state of Ukraine, even though it was historically part of Russia, Donbass. And the second reason, uh, they wanted Russians to remain part of the Ukrainian population for the same reason that Lenin put them there which was to water down the Bandera Nazi elements so that they wouldn't be, you know, just a total uh, component of Ukraine. So didn't accept them, and consequently they were exposed to eight years of violence and shelling, and uh, the territory shrank as the Nazi militias infiltrated and occupied villages, and so the Donbass Strength, but they declared their independence. Hmm. So what brought this finally to a head was the realization on part of the Kremlin that there was no ceasing the expansion of NATO to their borders. They already faced American missile systems in Romania and Poland, and now they're about to face NATO membership for Ukraine and more missile systems on their borders.
So they demanded the security meetings that went on for a couple of weeks or longer. And they found that the West was totally unresponsive to their security concerns. Just no response whatsoever to their security concerns. They also found that no one agreed to abide by the Minsk agreement that the Russians had worked out in 2014 to stop the violence between Ukraine and the Donbass region. Uh, Ukraine signed it. Uh, I think it was France and Germany guaranteed it, but it was never kept to. And so, again, the Russians tried once more, would you please abide by this agreement? And people said, no, it's all your fault. Well, that left them uh, in a situation where they simply had to act. Now, this is not an invasion. The Russian troops are not deployed in the western part of Ukraine. Uh, What they are doing is cleansing the Russian areas of Ukraine of the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian neo-Nazi militias. And so if you look on the maps, you see that basically most of the military operation has been within the borders of Donbass, driving out the Nazi militias, and Kiev. They've encircled Kiev. But they're not operating in Western Ukraine, because as the Kremlin has said over and over, they don't want to occupy Ukraine. They don't really want Ukraine. They're just cleansing the Nazi elements that the president of Ukraine was either unwilling or unable to control the Nazi elements that were armed and trained by the United States and the UK, and that once they destroyed all of those and Ukraine agreed not to join NATO to be demilitarized and a neutral state like Austria, uh, they would leave. And what has happened? Okay, what has happened is before any Russian troops went in, the entire military infrastructure of Ukraine was destroyed. All the airfields, the entire air force, the entire navy, then the troops went in. The Ukrainian army is completely defeated. It has no communication between units. It's broken up into separate pieces. Uh, It's incapable of any offensive action. But if you listen to the Western media, the Ukrainians are winning the war. The other day, the Secretary of Defense of the United States said that, oh, uh, the Russian invasion had been halted by the Ukrainian army and the Russians were simply throwing their troops into a a meat grinder. I think he called it a wood chipper, a wood chipper. Right, and right. the country was running out of soldiers and wouldn't be able to fight much longer. So, mm. so you have this kind of fantasy land explanation of events that bears no relationship to any reality. Okay, right. Thank you very much indeed for that background. Now, as I said to you before the interview, I'm going to come back at you with regard to a number of the points that you have made. So the first thing that I want to ask about this is you said that it's uh, a fantasy that Putin wants to resurrect the Russian Empire. Now, what is normally brought up with this is a quote that he gave back in 2005. Um, In fact, I've not seen any other quote that has to do with this particular issue, and it makes me wonder... Maybe this is the only quote they have, because it, otherwise we'd, we'd hear these other quotes all the time. So anyway, we have this one, which uh, he said, Above all, we should acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century, which does give the impression that he has this 
this kind of sentimental wish to bring about the you know the greater Russia again. Uh, do you think there's anything to that view at all? No, I think that's a misinterpretation of what he's saying. What he's saying is what Gorbachev had already said. It's almost word for word what Gorbachev said. And what they both mean is that the collapse of the Soviet Union removed the constraint on American unilateral action. And so we got the uh, bombing and destruction of Yugoslavia and Serbia. We got the bombing and destruction of Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia and Libya and the bombings in Pakistan of villages that uh, the Americans said were uh, al-Qaeda. And we got almost the destruction of Syria until the Russians stepped in and stopped it. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about when the Soviet Union collapsed, it got into the head of Washington, in their heads, that they could claim hegemony over the world and start uh, exercising unilateral action everywhere. So that's what that statement means. That's why he says it was a collapse. He doesn't mean for any moral reasons or any empire reasons. It, hmm. It's just that it removed a constraint that gave us the 20 years of American violence all over the world, especially in the Middle East. It's interesting that you should say that, because when I go to the transcript of the speech itself, which uh, hardly anybody in the media, of course, ever does, they just quote that little sentence there and make of it what they will. When you look at the context of that, um, he goes on to say that, well, I'll quote it. As for the Russian nation, it became a genuine drama. Tens of millions of our co-citizens and compatriots found themselves outside Russian territory. Moreover, the epidemic of disintegration infected Russia itself. Individual savings were depreciated, old ideals destroyed, many institutions were disbanded or reformed carelessly, terrorist intervention, etc., etc., oligarchical groups possessing absolute control over informational channels, etc., etc. And he talks about mass poverty began to be seen as the norm, etc. So he's not really talking there about, oh dear, we've lost geographical territory in itself. Self, but all these other consequences that he's pointing to, some of which seems to fit with what you say when it talks about um, you know, terrorist intervention and the like. Yeah, well, that's the second part. He's talking about the consequences for the Russians at the time and what they had to overcome. Mm. So in a way, he's showing the kind of challenge that he faced when he became the leader because he inherited the Yeltsin mess. Mm. And he's talking mm. about the Yeltsin mess. And I'm sure what his point is, we're not like that now. We've gotten out of it. We're strong. We can stand up for ourselves, which he very ably did two years later at the Munich Security Conference when he announced the end of American hegemony. He said, your unipolar world is over. And this was a shocking statement to the West. They all fell out of their seats. And <laughs> you, you see, there's plenty of proof that they don't want the empire back. For example, was it 2007 that the United States and Israel trained and equipped the Georgian army and sent it in to invade South Ossetia? Now, Georgia had been a part of Russia for centuries. Um, when the United States broke up the Soviet empire, it created a country out of Georgia. Well, a section that was part of the Russian province of Georgia, uh, South Ossetia didn't want to go, just like Donbass didn't want to go with Ukraine. 
And so there was a peacekeeping arrangement in south of Cessia. There would, there would be Georgian troops and Russian troops policing and keeping peace there. Well, when Washington sent the Georgian army in to invade, Putin was at the Beijing Olympics. That was the previous Olympics, not the one that just finished. And so he came back and uh, the Russian army went in and they conquered Georgia in three or four days. Well, then he pulled out. He left. Well, if he wanted to put the empire back together, he had a piece of it right there. That's quite a large piece, actually, that he had to share the Black Sea with. So he could have just put Georgia right back. There was nothing Georgia could do about it or anybody else. So this wasn't a failed attempt to take Georgia, you're saying? Well, of course. I mean, the, the narrative which it, I often hear is that South Ossetia and Abkhazia broke away and Russia supported them and then used that as a pretext in which to invade Georgia. And we're seeing a similar sort of thing with the Donbass, you know, to recognize the Donbass and go in to support them. And really, the idea is to take over the whole of Ukraine. And perhaps indeed, as uh, various politicians are saying at the moment, even to go further than that into the rest of Europe. So you're saying that, in fact, there was no intention to keep hold of Georgia indefinitely? No, of course not. I mean, they would have kept it. They had it. They could have hung the whole government and put it all back in Russia, but uh, they didn't do it. And it's south of Cessia had broken away at the time of the formation of Georgia, back in the early 90s. So, you know, the peacekeeping arrangement had been going on, I don't know how long, 15 years or more. So it was Washington saying, ha, here's how we're going to cause uh, Putin some trouble. I think actually this happened after he gave that speech at the Munich Security Conference, when he said, your unipolar period is over, hmm. I think this was Washington's reply to that. Okay, we'll teach him a lesson. Uh, yeah, it's a very interesting speech, actually. I want to come back to that with respect to the question as to what kind of globalism uh, Putin has in mind. Um, can I just bring to your mind again this business about the not one inch eastward promise? Because... Um, I get the impression there's some sort of historical revisionism going on at the moment where it's said that this is a Russian myth. The Russians were never, <laughs> they never promised that NATO would not expand to the east. And in fact, this is a Russian myth that's convenient to the Russians because, of course, they, they want to paint NATO as this offensive organization rather than a defensive organization. I don't buy this story, um, but this is what we're continually hearing at the moment. This is a Russian myth. Is it a myth? No, of course not. It, you know, I still remember the TV coverage at the time. Um, Gorbachev made an agreement with the uh, George Herbert Walker Bush administration, the one that succeeded Reagan. You know, Reagan's vice president yep. became president. Mm -hmm. And uh, the deal was Gorbachev would permit the reunification of Germany on the condition that NATO did not move to Russia's borders. And this was the agreement that was made. It's all kinds of documents that prove that. It's not any kind of myth. It's, in fact, you could probably find the newsreels from the time still. <laughs> now, what, right. yeah. uh, what the initial response of, uh, I think it was Obama, the Obama regime, uh, if not the Biden regime, the initial response when the when the Russians first made this point was, well, it's not in writing. Yeah, right. You're stupid. You trusted our word. It's not in writing. And so since it's not in writing, we didn't have to obey it. 
So this was the official American position. They didn't deny that they gave this assurance, but they said it doesn't carry any law, any weight of law, because it's not writing. And that's been the position. I've never heard any American officials say that it's a myth. I heard them say, well, uh, you know, it was just words. It wasn't on paper. Right. Well, I'm getting this from media reports. However, I went to the, where is it? It's at George Washington University, the US National Security Archive there to find out what they what they assessed of the various documents that existed. I think you've uh, mentioned there. And I'm just going to read another paragraph because I think this is really very interesting. They say, uh, Washington, D.C., December the 12th, 2017, U.S. Secretary of State James Baker's famous not one inch eastward assurance about NATO expansion in his meeting with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, February 9, 1990, uh, was part of a cascade of assurances about Soviet security given by Western leaders to Gorbachev and other Soviet officials throughout the process of German unification in 1990 and on into 1991, according to declassified US, Soviet, German, British and French documents posted today by the National Security Archive at George Washington University, the documents show that multiple national leaders were considering and rejecting Central and Eastern European membership in NATO as of early 1990 through 1991, that discussion of NATO in the context of German unification negotiations in 1990 were not at all narrowly limited to the status of East Germany, and that subsequent Soviet and Russian complaints about being misled about NATO expansion were founded in written contemporaneous memcoms and telcoms at the highest level. That is their assessment of the documentary evidence that exists. So if anybody wants to go over there, I will put the link in the show notes. Um, seems pretty convincing to me. Yes, well, it, it's exactly yeah. what happened. And I'm surprised those documents haven't been uh, deleted. <laughs> right. In fact, yeah. I, I suspect they will be if this mm. empire of lies continues. You see, it's very difficult to challenge any official narrative, whether it's COVID or whether it's 9-11 or whether it's Ukraine, because you get erased, you get deplatformed, you get uh, discredited as a anti-Semite or something, you are a Russian agent. Uh, in the West, the very uh, notion of truth is evaporating because truth is what serves the agenda, not what the fact is. Yes, we're told that we are in a post-truth society now. Yeah, which that's well, a, we, a horrid, horrid phrase. We're, we're in a society in which truth means support of the narrative. Mm. Whatever agenda the narrative favors, that's what truth is. And if you don't favor it, then you are a domestic terrorist, a Russian agent, a COVID denier or disinformation, mm. you, you know, and all sorts of people in the United States, and I think throughout the West, mm. have simply had their voice taken away. Mm. This was incredible during the COVID period because all of the important, distinguished experts were silenced in the United States. Yeah. Fire shut down because they said this narrative is wrong. Yeah. It turns out they were right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I spoke to uh, Dr. Paul Marrick in the end of 2020, and he was saying that he was being described as a fringe doctor, yeah. and yet he's 
one of the most distinguished doctors in the world. <laughs> you know, in, in his area, I think he's the second most cited individual. So it's yeah. absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Um, you mentioned about um, you know extremism, and you also mentioned about far right groups in Ukraine. And this is another thing that in the media we're we're almost encouraged to believe that this is another myth that there aren't significant numbers of far-right militias and ultranationalists. Um, and yet my understanding is that they have historically really significant influence in that country, and they continue to this day to have a significant influence. Is that your understanding as well? Yes, of course. I don't know why the media gets away with reconstructing history. Mm. Everybody in my generation knows the history. I guess the young simply don't know anything. And so they can tell whatever lies they want because young people don't know any better. Well, a BBC article that I read just the other day said that, you know, it was talking about what Putin did because he was concerned about the Nazis in, in Ukraine. And it said, well, there were no Nazis, by, by which it means, you know, in the context of him having done that. In other words, there are no Nazis. And I thought, well, on the face of it, that's absurd because there are going to be Nazis in every country. But, you know, it was crafted to deny that there is an issue like that in the, well, within Ukraine. Julian, the history books mm. are full of the fact mm. that mm. Uh, the Western Ukraine fought for Germany against the Soviet Union. Mm. They had an entire division or more than one division of troops fighting under the SS against the Soviet Red Army. This is the history of, uh, of Western Ukraine. And those elements have always been there. They were encouraged by Washington during the Cold War as a way of trying to cause trouble inside the Soviet Union, yeah. in Ukraine, which was a principal part of the Soviet Union. So even after the war, the elements that uh, survived to the Russian victory were encouraged all during the Cold War and turned into uh, nationalists and freedom fighters. And uh, they had their own, you know, spokespeople in, uh, in Washington. <laughs> I actually recently saw Oliver Stone's documentary, Ukraine on Fire, and it lays this out. Um, so I do recommend people look at that if they haven't already. I mean, one thing I find astonishing is that the so-called Azov Battalion is actually now an official part of the National Guard of Ukraine. And I cannot help but see that as having distinct neo-Nazi tones to it. I mean, it has this emblem that it uses. What is it? The 2nd SS Panzer Division of the Reich emblem. It's very, very close to that. And I understand that its founder, Andrei Biletsky or something like that, um, back in 2018, The Guardian reported that he had said, and this is supposedly a quote from him, that they were going to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade against the Semite-led Untermenschen. Well, I mean, he denies having said that, but The Guardian reported that. And I have to say that language doesn't sound normal. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there can't be any doubt about it. But you see, in my view, it doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is the West would not acknowledge Russia's legitimate security concerns. The Russians said over and over, look, security has to be mutual. Mm. You can't have security if we don't have it, and we can't, and you can't have it. It works both ways. We have to have mutual security. And that's what they were refused. And so the reason I think it started in uh, eastern Ukraine is because 
for eight years, uh, Putin has been under pressure from Russian patriots. Why are you permitting our brothers in Donbass to be slaughtered by these Nazi And in a way, it's Russia's fault because if they had accepted the vote of the um, breakaway republics to rejoin Russia in 2014, nobody would have attacked them. They would have been part of Russia, like Crimea. Who's going to go attack Russia? No, nobody. Certainly not Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not saying it's their fault. It's everybody's fault in a way, isn't it? You well, say, well, it's Washington's <laughs> fault for this and it's Russia's fault for that. I mean, one thing is, whose fault is it that the Minsk Accords were never actually, they were agreed and they were unanimously agreed, as far as I understand it. They have the force of law. Nothing's done about it for eight years. How come? The United States refused to let Ukraine abide by it. Ukraine is not an independent country. I mean, I hope you don't think any European country, including your own, even including the UK, <laughs> or anything but American puppet states. I can assure you, Dr. Roberts, having spoken to you many times, I'm under no illusion uh, about that. It's an empire, and they're puppet mm. states. They always line up with Washington on every issue. Indeed, they try to outdo one another to please us because they get more money. I don't know if I ever told you this, Julian, but mm. many years ago, when I was a young man, it turned out that my Ph.D. dissertation chairman found himself Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Hmm. This was during the Vietnam War. His job was to wind the war down. He sent for me, and I came to his office. It was about the size of a football field. <laughs> he wanted me to go to Vietnam and take over the aid programs because uh, they were being used corruptly and stolen and everything, and and he thought that I wouldn't tolerate anything like that. So he wanted me to go to Vietnam because the uh, Washington still had the idea that even though they were going to be pulling out, uh, the country could be saved. And so it would need the aid programs to, you know, keep it strong and the economy working and so on. He wanted me to go take. So I went and listened. I told him I didn't want to do that. I didn't want that job and use the opportunity. To ask him, I said, how is it that we, the United States, always get every country to do what we want? And he said, money. I said, oh, you mean foreign aid? No, we give the leaders bankfuls of money. We own them. They report to us. That's what he said. Those were his exact words. Now, he did not agree with this, but there's nothing he could do about it. It's the way it was. It had been like that since the Second World War. Wherever you look, and, and, who, and who was the bad guy in all that early on? De Gaulle, because he wouldn't do it. He was outside the system. Everyone's forgotten. France wasn't part of NATO. Uh, France is the one who uh, forced the United States off gold because they said, we're not holding your dollars. We want the gold. Give us the gold. That's when Nixon had to close the gold window. France was going its own way. It was sort of like an outcast. But the uh, United States controlled the rest of Europe and certainly Great Britain. And so that is the situation. I mean, it, this is why your media sounds exactly like ours. The German media does and the Italian and the Dutch. And, you know, it's all the same voice. 
you read the BBC, you read New York Times, you read Los Angeles Times, you read a German newspaper, they all say the same thing. Mm. The whole mm. view of Ukraine is identical. Mm. There's nobody anywhere asking the question. I mean, you're doing it on this program, but I mean, not in the TV or print world. No. Uh, no one's asked questions. No, and I'll probably be probably be criticised by people for asking such questions because I'm not just you know, having that knee-jerk reaction. He's Hitler and I'm not allowed to think any further than that. I mean, my purpose in having this interview and an interview that I will have with Adi Inka McIndey uh, next week is to try to understand what is going on. You know, I, to some extent, the moral question of who to blame is less interesting to me than understanding the historical and geographical and political background behind this because at the end of the day i can't do anything about it i just want to understand it so um you know i can't can i um so i mean minsk is so putin says that minsk is dead now that's not because he wants it to be dead my understanding is well you know it's effectively dead because nothing's happened to it for the last eight years but now if i turn to uh john mearsheimer who's become quite a, a personality in the media recently of course because he is talking about this kind of thing he's a distinguished professor of politics and international relations at the university of chicago now now, just before the invasion, as most people are calling this, he was saying that although Minsk hasn't been acted upon, he was still hoping that something like Minsk could still take place, that a neutral, disarmed Ukraine with real devolution, real autonomy for the Donbass could still happen. Do you think that is still possible? Or are we looking at a situation where Russia will just... that The pressure of circumstances will lead to Russia taking over the whole of Ukraine. Uh, no, I don't think that Russia will take over the whole of Ukraine. Uh, Donbass, these are now independent republics recognized as independent by Russia. Mm-hmm. Once Russia recognized them as independent republics, uh, the Minsk Agreement is dead because the Minsk Agreement kept them within Ukraine, but gave them some wow. autonomy, such as their own police force, so the neo-Nazis couldn't continue persecuting them. Putin was trying to keep them in Ukraine. Right. He rejected their appeal to be reunited to Russia. And so the Minsk agreement was, this was a good solution for Ukraine, but the United States simply wouldn't let their puppet take it because here's what's really going on. The United States is using this to isolate Russia from Europe because Washington is terrified that growing European dependence on Russian energy, growing trade relations between Europe and Russia will weaken Washington's hold on its own empire. And therefore, they have to isolate Russia from the West, and you do that by demonizing it, stigmatizing it, such that no one is willing to have these relations. And that's what the sanctions are all about. The sanctions are falling primarily on Europeans, not on Russians. So this is this is what's so paradoxical about it. If you say that it is indeed to isolate Russia, to strangle Russia, mm-hmm. it's not really going to achieve that, is it? It seems to me that that's actually, in the long run, it may even end up strengthening Russia by weakening the West. I mean, because Russia has so many allies to look to and so many resources. I mean, it's often talked about how poor Russia is, etc. It's got an economy the size of Spain. But I understand that's that's because that measure is reckoned in terms of the value of the ruble. But if you actually look at 
the resources they have in terms of population and minerals and the like, they're hugely wealthy and they have China and they have India and they have Pakistan and the various countries and the BRICS nations, of course, with whom they can do business. And now that we have a situation where Russian wealth has been basically frozen in the West, I mean, who's going to want to, you know, who's going to trust the West? I mean, what's China thinking about? I mean, I understand that China has vast amounts of American debt that it owns. Can that all be frozen? Um, yeah, sure. But you see, China also has all of American industry because all of American industry is located in China. And it makes goods there with Chinese labor that it brings back here to sell. I mean, all the Apple computers are made in China, Nike shoes, Levi jeans, everything we make is in China. So they own our entire productive potential. So, yeah, we can uh, refuse to um, pay our debts and uh, they can simply say, well, we've nationalized everything here. Hmm. And they would own, um, you know, the American economy. <laughs> That's the situation. Mm. Uh, when I say the purpose is to isolate Russia, it's to isolate them not from the world, which they can't do, right. but from Europe, because the United States wants to continue to control Europe. And the United States always makes uh, its puppets pay. For example, who's paying for Ukraine? The Ukrainians. <laughs> there are no American troops over there. Um, who's paying for the sanctions? The Germans. I saw, I just read this morning that the German producer price uh, index had jumped something like 29%. Well, this is an amazing jump. <laughs> what does that mean? It means uh, everybody's going to be a lot poorer in Germany. Now, just think about if the Russians themselves imposed sanctions. If they, What happens to Germany if they turn off the energy? Well, according to... Uh, one of the main companies in Europe that is part of the power grid of Europe, the CEO said a couple of weeks ago, if the Russians turn off the gas to Germany, we will have to remove Germany from the power grid. In other words, the entirety of German industry would be closed down. Well, why don't the Russians do this? They could easily do it. Why don't they stop selling the West all the strategic minerals that the West industry can't operate without? That would close down the industry. Hmm. Well, the Russians say, well, we honor our contracts. We're reliable suppliers. We don't behave the way you do. Isn't that actually quite a shrewd way of going about this? Well, I think it's foolish myself because the Russians could have achieved their goal in Ukraine simply by turning off the gas to Europe particularly back during the winter, because everybody would have been freezing to death. The factories would have been stopped. Nobody working. The firms had no, would have had no revenues to service their debt. I mean, they could have mm. collapsed Europe. And then nobody would want to do business with them again, would they? Well, you know, they would I, show themselves again, according to yeah, propaganda, to be devious and untrustworthy, etc. No, I don't believe that for a minute. Everybody would know why they did it. And so Europe would be saying, you dumb Americans, you give them the security guarantee now. And NATO would have broken up if the Americans hadn't said, oh, yes, you're right. They've got to have the security guarantee. That's what they needed to do. Um, I think the main reason they didn't do it was not that they were just trying to show that they honor contracts and contrast themselves with the West, which is dishonorable and doesn't honor contracts. 
I think that the Russian economists were brainwashed by American neoliberals during the Yeltsin period, and in particular that uh, central bank head the Russians have, and they believe erroneously that Russia cannot develop internally without access to foreign exchange. And so they think they need the dollars and the euros from selling their energy and their raw materials. Now, this is a completely mistaken idea, but the American neoliberal economists have got them all brainwashed. That's the way they think. See, what else did the Russian Central Bank have half or more of Russian reserves outside the country in Western banks where they could be easily confiscated. It makes no sense, except that you've got people that simply are so unsophisticated economically that they're dupes of the West. That is, the Russian central bank chief is a complete, total dupe so why, if, if this is true, then why does Putin because accept that situation? He doesn't know anything about economics. Hmm. That's what he's told. You know, people who are in positions of political authority, they don't know anything except what their advisors tell them. And so there you have it. She's the central bank head. She's saying, oh, well, we, we have to, we'll have inflation if, hmm. if we don't have... Uh, foreign reserves. I mean, it's all nonsense. I've shown it over and over. Michael Hudson has shown it over and over. Mm. There's one Russian economist, uh, Gladzev, he's shown it over and over, but the, it doesn't penetrate. And so I think that's the reason, you see, in other words, who has the real power in the sanction game is the Russians. They don't use it. Mm. Look, what does the West can, can I just, can well, I say, is, can I want to come back point. to... What do, the best God. produce that Russia needs? Nothing. What does Russia produce that the West can't function without? Energy, strategic minerals, mm. food. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say, we'd mentioned about the notion that Putin is a globalist. Um, he has relations with the World Economic Forum going back many years. And of course, now the World Economic Forum has distanced themselves, so they say, from Russia because of this situation. But is a lot of what you've just said in Putin's mind because he still has a kind of naive, an old-fashioned view of what the global community should really be like? I mean, when I turn to that 2007 Munich speech, he talks about, you know, one centre of authority as being bad. He says, one centre of force, one centre of decision-making. It's a world which there's one master, one sovereign. He's talking, of course, about the US-led unipolar world. But he seems to he seems to favour a multipolar world, but under the umbrella of institutions that are globalist. Is he thinking that way and therefore does not want to rock the boat, as it were, of that global order that he still hopes will be amenable to a multipolar structure? Yes, he doesn't understand what globalism means. He thinks globalism is a bunch of different countries working together peacefully. In other words, he thinks sovereignty is consistent with globalism, but it's not. In globalism, there's no sovereignty except for the country that's running the globalism. So the way Washington has it, Washington 
runs the globalism to suit its purpose. It has sovereignty and nobody else does. And that's not got into Putin's head. He thinks globalism is we're, we're all sovereign, but we're working together to achieve common uh, economic benefit. In other words, he's thinking like Adam Smith or David Ricardo centuries ago about free trade or something. Yes. It's not what globalism is, and that hasn't dawned on him yet. Russian sovereignty is totally inconsistent with globalism as understood in the West. Mm. All right, very interesting. Uh, you may have come across the writer Eugippius, who is a German scholar uh, who was an academic. He writes about this. He doesn't use the word technocracy, but it very much connects with that. He talks about this globalist system as being basically a borg. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is just a wonderful little paragraph that I brought out here, um, quoting from him. The system globalists don't recognize the legitimacy of Russian strategic interests or the legitimacy of anybody's strategic interests. Globalists do not have security concerns in that way. Many of them even believe their own hollow rhetoric, that they're spreading freedom and democracy, even after these last two years of experimentation in forced vaccination and intermittent mass house arrest. Even if they don't believe all that about democracy, they nevertheless imagine that they are missionaries of light and goodness to all people everywhere, and that human potential will only be fully realized when every last Russian is on Facebook and subscribed to Amazon Prime. He says <laughs> it is basically a borg that imposes economic and political constraints on an ever-expanding expanse of the globe. Um, that seems to fit very much what you're saying there, that Putin is thinking in national terms, but this borg almost self-perpetuating Borg just doesn't care about anything much except expanding its own its own tentacles and its own self-existence. Um, That's a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, so, uh. <laughs> However, however, I'm going to come back, though, because I said that I, I don't want to talk too much about moral questions, but I will talk about one, and that is they have invaded Ukraine. Well, they don't call it an invasion. Okay, they have gone into that territory. I was very, very surprised as the vast majority of people were. In fact, when I initially heard about it, I didn't believe it. And the, the, of course, the, the irony here is that I first heard about this, saw this on the BBC News website, and I thought, I don't believe this, that they've gone in. And I checked with RT, which was still broadcasting in this country at the time, and found that that was in fact the case. It was only then that I thought, well, you know, if the people who are accused of this are, are admitting to it, then it must have happened. Well, now RT's gone, so I can't even check that. But um, should Russia really have gone in morally speaking i mean just it seems to me not just surprising but unnecessary surely going in like that is an absolute last resort this doesn't strike me as an absolute last resort well it, it certainly struck them that way they're denied acknowledgement by washington and nato of their security concern they're faced with uh, Ukraine being a member of NATO and more missile bases on Russia's border. They're faced with Ukraine acquiring nuclear weapons. You know, much of the Soviet uh, nuclear operation was in Ukraine, and that could be uh, refurbished. And Plus, they've been watching the encroachments on them for years, protesting, and the encroachments continue. So I think the final straw for them was the refusal of uh, the United States and NATO mm -hmm. to acknowledge their security concern. Now, I said I thought they could have prevented it in 2014 by accepting the Donbass back into Russia. But they, at the time, I think, felt, well, 
if we do this, after having accepted Crimea, this will confirm the American propaganda that we're rebuilding the Soviet empire. And they had hopes in negotiations. It, just, it took the Russians so long to wise up to the West is why this went on so long. Could they not have just, as they were at the beginning of this business, could they not just have continued to swarm around the border of Ukraine in a menacing way? You know, to sort of say, look, this is the ultimatum. Don't go any any further. And just No. no? People don't believe you if you never act. In fact, that was the real danger that I think it finally dawned on the Kremlin. You know, we've been protesting this for 15 years. They don't pay any attention to us. Um, see, my concern all this time has been that by accepting the provocations one after another that the Russians did, they accepted them over and over and they continued to talk about our Western partners. They continued to act as if this is nothing but a misunderstanding. It can be resolved with diplomacy. Let's have meetings. Let's talk about it. And this went on and on and on and never dawned on the Russians that what they were doing by never responding forcibly was encouraging more provocations. And my concern was, well, since the West is accustomed to elevating the provocations, they're going to cross a red line and it's going to result in nuclear war. So I've been saying that the Russians are endangering the whole world by their lack of response because the provocations will get worse and worse year after year until finally the Russians back is to the wall and they can't do anything but launch the nukes. And I think this finally dawned on Putin that, hey, you know, we've encouraged all this. They don't take us seriously. Well, what, what do you do when you show the world the fantastic array of weapons that you have like he did in 2017? He could wipe out the world instantly. You show them that they this still is, don't pay any attention. Yeah, well, this, this is part, of, this is part of the problem, isn't it, though, with regard... Isn't this part of the problem, though, that they have spent so much on these fantastic weapons with their nuclear weapons, their missiles? They've not spent the same on their tanks and their aircraft and the like. And so they're sort of bogged down now in Ukraine. They're not bogged, um, down. They're not bogged down in Ukraine. <laughs> There's no effective Ukrainian army left. They have been bogged down from the beginning because once they announced this policy of no heavy weapon use on civilian centers... The neo-Nazis knew what to do. They ensconced themselves in the middle of those centers. And so now, if they don't use heavy weapons, they got to go in there street by street, house by house, to clear them out. Well, that means casualties that they don't otherwise need to take. They're not bogged down. All these places are surrounded. They can't launch any offensive. They can't do anything. And the Russians are trying to decide... Can we get this finished with negotiation or we're going to have to take the casualties of going street by street? Or, or I, what I think is happening is that the militias themselves are now killing the populations and blowing up the buildings because they know the Western media is going to blame it on Russia. And so the Russians are going to say, well, they're blowing up the cities anyhow. 
and we blamed anyhow, so we might as well just finish them off. Well, that's highly plausible yeah. because there's an awful lot of talk over the last couple of months or so about false flag. You know, both sides yeah. have been chucking this term around, which was previously considered to be a conspiracy theory term. Now it's quite mainstream, and it's as, as if we're all being primed to accept that these things are going to be happening so that when some ultra-nationalist is committing something, that will be seen as being, oh, no, Russia's claiming something they did it themselves, you know, and claiming it's a false flag, and all this is a kind of narrative that's being built there. Um, I actually saw, and again, you don't know, do you, what's propaganda and what's not, but before RT was removed from our airwaves, I did see what was claimed to be the setting up of a large gun in the middle of a civilian area. And I did think at the time, well, why are they doing that? It looks like they're deliberately trying to shield themselves. And at that point, we were, I'm afraid, interrupted by a notification from my computer's antivirus software, which, after it was established that it was a false alarm, I'm glad to say, we continued the conversation. A point that I wanted to make about what we were talking about was that um, you will recognise the name John Simpson, the veteran BBC journalist. I was very surprised to hear him say recently that in terms of strategy, not in terms of morality, just in terms of strategy, he thinks that what Putin should have done was to go in very decisively, deal with the whole thing extremely quickly. And he said one of the major errors that Putin made was not to cut off communications. And he said that Zelensky was there addressing the nation every day. So it was interesting to see him say that. And of course, he lamented the fact that this instability that has resulted is extremely dangerous. Yes, well, that's been my criticism from the beginning, because what is at stake from my standpoint in all of this is not the military intervention in Ukraine to clear out the neo-Nazis who've been shelling the Donbass Russians for eight years. Now, that's Putin's goal. And my view of where the strategic mistake is, is that what Putin desperately needs to do is to teach the West a lesson that ends the provocations, period, that there's never another one, that the NATO European countries tell the Americans, oh, no, don't, we're not part of that anymore. That game's over. And so that's why he needed to go in there, conquer Ukraine in three days, just so the rest of Europe would say they mean what they say. We're stopping this American game. We're not part of this game anymore. He needed to act so hard because it's the continuation of the provocations that are going to cause a nuclear war. And a nuclear war destroys not just Ukraine, but the whole world. Yeah. There was a point that I wanted to bring up with regard to this false flag business. I was distracted by that antivirus thing. I'm very concerned, as no doubt you are, all this talk about chemical weapons. Of course, this is built on the narrative of Syria, which we've talked about before, um, is almost setting up ultra-nationalists to use chemical weapons, which of course would be immediately blamed upon Russia. Now, I, I, I can't prove that Russia does not want to use chemical weapons. I can't prove that, that it's not Russian policy to kill civilians, but I, I, can't, I can't make sense of that. What makes much more sense to me is that this is a come on to people like I've just described, ultra-nationalists, to use such weapons so as to score a propaganda victory. And it's very, very concerning that I think that's coming down the road in you know very, very near future. 
Well, what good is a propaganda victory going to do them? They can't have a military victory. And uh, the Kremlin has already made it clear, all of them that it captures will be subject to a war crime tribunal and will be hung as war criminals. If they use chemical weapons, it's going to kill Ukrainians. Um, the Russians have no use of the chemical weapons. The whole policy has been to minimize civilian deaths. This is why you say it's stalled. It's stalled simply because they haven't made up their decision to flatten the forces. That did ensconce themselves among the civilians with heavy weapons. So the neo-Nazi militias fire the heavy weapons against the Russians from within these protected civilian areas. And the Russians can't fire back. So when you have that type of a situation and you say, okay, let's uh, use chemical weapons and blame the Russians, probably the result's simply going to be they're going to give up this policy of restraint and clear out the Nazis in one fell swoop. You know, I think this is just part of the Western demonization of Russia. There's nothing said in the Western press anywhere about this war that's true. It's all a psyops campaign to teach such hatred among the peoples that Russia will be excluded from the West. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. So I think what needs to happen is a demonstration of a red line. And the Russians have showed this. Now, I don't, it may not be reported in the British news, but in the last couple of days, the Russians have eliminated three NATO bases in western Ukraine that were being used to store weapons and where there were active British and American intelligence and military personnel Ukrainians in the use of the weapons that Washington is sending. This is in the western Ukraine. All three bases were wiped out. The Americans and the British were killed too. So they have made it clear anybody gets into this is going to be eliminated. There's nothing the West can do about it. Do you really think if the Russians were stalled and facing defeat, you wouldn't have NATO on their backs? They'd be in there. The Americans would have NATO in there immediately if they thought the Russians were stalled and being defeated. What they know is if NATO goes in there, NATO's going to be destroyed. The Russians haven't announced any kind of a go-slow policy with NATO casualties. There's no military force in the West that can confront a Russian army. None. My concern, well, I have lots of concerns, but my main concern is if Russia were to be as heavy-handed as you suggest, that would just confirm all the propaganda about him being... Hitler, Putin is Hitler, etc. That would just say, well, yes, he is. Look, just how violent is he? And then look at that example and say, well, look, he's coming over the border into Poland. He's coming over the next border into Germany. And if he were to do something like that, would that not backfire in that sense? And quite apart from the morality of that, and I'm not talking, I'm not talking in terms of the morality of it. I'm just talking in terms of the strategy of it. No. If he were to do something like that. Julian, the propaganda is already confirmed. It doesn't matter what Russia does. The propaganda is going to be against them. 
It doesn't matter what they do. Didn't do them any good to take it easy on civilian casualties. Because it's all denied. Oh, they're blowing up this. They're blowing up that. They, they blew up uh, 12 maternity hospitals. They showed pictures of the dead women and dead babies. It was all staged. It was movie actors. Well, you don't know that's true, do you? No, How do you know that that is, that is the case? Yeah. I have sources of information that are real still. You know, the, pro- the, the problem I have with this particular issue is that as I've said before, I can't see how it would be in Russia's interests to have a policy of attacking civilians. But of course, I can't actually say that's not going on. All I can say is that I'm not persuaded by the news reports that I've seen. In fact, I spoke to you, didn't I, before the interview about one that I just happened to come across today. Um, I'll just bring it up so that I can speak accurately about it. Um, yes, where it says Ukraine war, Russian soldiers fire on Kurzon protesters. And it says this is verified by the BBC and it shows you the video there and you see these people in the square and they're running around and trying to escape from what sounds like gunfire and the smoke of bombs, etc. And it ends with saying, the little video ends with saying it's reported that at least one person has been left injured. And I just think at least once it could be one and what does left injured mean? They fell over and hurt their knee? And then, and then I'm thinking if all those guns were going off and it really was a policy of attacking people, there wouldn't be anybody left in there. There won't be anybody left on that square at all, and yet they're all running away. So just the way that that is skewed, the way that's said, just I find again and again the reports are like that. So it doesn't convince me that this is in fact a Russian policy, but I can't prove it, you know? I'm in this situation where I don't know. It may be the case that there are, you know, all these corridors, humanitarian corridors, maybe the people are escaping from the cities and then they're being shot at by Russian troops doesn't make any sense to me. It makes much more sense that the opposition might be doing that so that it gets blamed on Russia, but but I can't prove it. So it's a very difficult situation I to be in. You just have to see what makes most sense, don't you? You can easily prove it. Mm-hmm. If this report is true, it means that the Russian troops are so poorly trained they can't hit a target. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you exactly what happened there. The gunfire you hear is somewhere else. And the media is filming the people running around, but it's not showing any of them falling down dead from bullet wounds. They use the sound effects from whatever fighting is going on somewhere else, along with filming people that they went and got to run around in a circle, and then they, that becomes evidence of Russian shooting people. This is well, that's that's one possibility. That's one interpretation, but it could just mean that they were shooting. But they could have just. <laughs> but they could have been shooting in the air, couldn't they? Heavy-handed, granted, heavy-handed, shooting in the air to disperse these people, and it gets interpreted as the direct shooting because that's the way it seems to be skewed in the media. Look, the people in these either way, the people in these way, cities being persecuted by these neo-Nazis would probably be very glad to see the Russians. Wow! You see, the corridors. It was the Russians who established the corridors for the people to leave the cities, so they could deal with the neo-Nazi militias, and militias won't let them leave. And they stop them leaving by shooting them. So everybody got the word, don't leave, you get shot. This is what's actually going on. There's no reason for the Russians to waste ammunition on unarmed people or, or divert their attention from armed forces to go after unarmed civilians if they were if they were indifferent to civilians, they wouldn't have adopted this policy of not using heavy weapons on cities. So we can dismiss it all. And then again, 
I want to make the point that what needs to be established in the minds of the Western world is that the provocations of Russia have got to stop or there's going to be nuclear war. There's no ifs and buts about it. So the Europeans and the British, by enabling and supporting the constant American provocations of Russia, like right now, while Ukraine is going on, NATO is in Georgia conducting joint military operations with Georgia. This is a massive provocation. So here we have the Ukraine thing going, and then we're already provoking that. And during the security meetings that Russia had, what were we doing? We were in Kazakhstan trying to pull off a color revolution. Well, these are serious provocations. The consequence is going to be nuclear war. There don't seem to be a single European or British leader with a high, an IQ high enough to understand that they are enabling the Americans to push the world into nuclear war. That's what Europe is doing. That's what the British prime minister is doing. That's what your whole intellectual class and the totally useless media are doing. They're setting up nuclear war. And they're too dumb to see it, to understand it. But isn't also Putin responsible for setting up nuclear war? No. Because why is... Why, I mean, why... Okay, I mean, I'm looking here at a map. Okay, Kazakhstan is massive. And you could... Now, just a minute. You can see this massive border. You've just been talking about Kazakhstan. Massive border with Russia. Okay, and I look at Ukraine and I say, okay, it's a couple of thousand kilometers. But I mean, the, all the way up there on Western Russian border... Well, it pretty much, apart from Belarus, of course, which is mates with Russia, you know, pretty much belongs to NATO. It's Western friendly. Why not just let Ukraine go? Why not just let it be part of NATO and just accept that situation? Perhaps just have the, the Donbass protected, have your peacekeeping troops in there, just accept that situation. That means more U.S. missile bases on Russia's border. Why are they going to accept that when they see the hostility of the West toward them? Putin would have to be, he'd, be, he'd probably be arrested as a traitor if he accepted that, to let Americans put uh, nuclear missiles on Russia's border, where they have two-minute warning, if that. But they could just stick them in Estonia or Latvia, couldn't they, or but, Lithuania? Baloney, this, <laughs> when you refuse to acknowledge that Russia has legitimate security concerns that they have tried to resolve with diplomacy, and you simply turn a cold shoulder, you deliberately provoke the intervention. The Americans wanted this intervention. They provoked it. They left no alternative. Why did the Americans want it? To break Russia from Europe, to break the energy connections, the economic connections, to keep the empire for America, not watch it slowly erode through economic relationships with Russia dependency on Russian energy, Russian minerals. It's to save the empire. It's to exclude Russia from Europe. Mm. Weiss's policy is you don't have any valid security concerns. We put in NATO whoever we want to put in NATO. It's not up to you. 
If we want to threaten you and have missile bases on your border, that's our right. And Putin says, then you're saying we don't have security, only you have security. This is not mutual security. Well, mutual security was the history of the whole Cold War. It's what the United States presidents worked with the Soviet leaders for administration after administration after administration. Change after change in Soviet leadership. It was to produce a secure situation so the bombs didn't go off, the big bombs. Well, all of that has been discarded and now is provoke, provoke, provoke. It's presented as an open door policy for NATO, isn't it? No other country should have any say in what any other country chooses to do. And there's this idea that NATO is no threat to anybody. It's an open door. It's absolutely fine. And yet, as you're saying, that ignores the security concerns of Russia. But not only that, it goes against NATO's own conditions of entry to that organization. It says something like any country coming into that organization must must enhance the security and stability across Europe. And there's absolutely no way that Ukraine coming into that organization does that. So it goes against NATO's own principles. Why do, you, why do you think NATO has any principles? It's a puppet tool of Washington. Hmm. Does Washington have principles? What, after Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction? You remember Colin Powell wow. at the UN with anthrax power? <laughs> proof, we have proof of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. We have the American National Security Advisor, Condi Rice, Mushroom clouds over American cities, Assad's use of chemical weapons, all the lies about Assad, Iranian nukes. This is why he says empire of lies, isn't it? This this is Putin's own phrase. Do they ever catch on? All right, so where where do we go from here? I mean, one possibility is nuclear war. Well, let's assume that's not going to happen. Where do we go from here? Is there any solution to this? In any kind of negotiation, there have been various rounds of negotiation. There's talk about, of course, a no-fly zone. Zelensky keeps on asking for a no-fly zone. That looks like that's not going to happen because that just invites the the escalation to a, a nuclear conflict, it seems to me. So are these talks going to achieve anything, any solution, kind of a, a post-Minsk carving up of the area and security guarantees? Is it possible? I, the Russians will do whatever they decide to do. I don't think... Uh, Anybody else has any input into it. The talk about a no-fly zone is absurd. I mean, that's what exists. There is a no-fly zone. It's a Russian one. There's no one can challenge it. Do you think NATO has the capability of challenging a Russian no-fly zone in Ukraine? It's zero capability of doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So, so Russia is going to do what she's going to do. These are fantasy talks. What, what? Zelensky, it doesn't, he's, hmm. there's no government in Ukraine. The Russians keep talking because they think, well, maybe uh, he'll realize he's defeated and we don't have to kill all these people. I think they're wasting their time because Zelensky is not an independent agent. He is a Washington puppet. Moreover, if he gets out of line with the neo-Nazi militias, they'll kill him. So all this negotiation, it's just the Russians saying, well, maybe somebody will come to the senses and we won't have to have destroy Kiev. And you don't think that will happen? You think 
just an escalation of the violence and you don't think there's any chance? I know. See, that there has been something suggested about, you know, these legally binding security guarantees and then something like um, Ukraine having protection from a group of allied countries. Well, look, so not NATO, a... but it's kind of sub-NATO that, you know, that Russia will think, oh, it's not proper NATO, you know, it's just a group of countries that would help out. Well, and... Julian, look, just ask <laughs> if the security meetings that Russia demanded with the United States and NATO and the Council of Europe refuse to even acknowledge the Russian concern, how they're going to get some agreement about Ukraine. They're not going to get any agreement. Why would they want an agreement? Because what agreement have we ever kept with them? Zilch. It's not just that we violated the promise not to move NATO one inch to the east. We have broken all the Cold War treaties that were put together to reduce tensions. We've repealed anti-ballistic missile defense. We've completely wiped out all the accomplishments of the diplomacy of the 20th century Cold War. All of those agreements are now ruined. They're in ruins. So how can the Russians trust anything? Why, why do they want another agreement? I could never understand why Putin thought he could trust the Minsk agreement. He's said over and over and over, they've broken every agreement we've ever had. So why does he want another one? Why Are they going to suddenly keep one? Because the alternative is just to take over the whole of Ukraine, is it not? No. And then they, don't, you, you they see, say they don't want to do that. But what other alternative will they have? They'll have to control that territory. Otherwise, it will sometime or other get absorbed into NATO. They've got to make sure that doesn't happen. The only way they can do that is by taking over the whole space. But when they do that, they'll be forcing their rule upon Ukraine and they'll be increasing nationalist sentiment within that country. They'll have a cauldron of civil war forever. No, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. The... um, Ukraine is cut off now from the Black Sea. All of that will be part of the breakaway republics. Mm-hmm. The only way this is going to end is Ukraine is going to be a demilitarized, neutral country. That's how it's going to end. The Russians are not going to be satisfied with anything else. And they, they will have established a red line. You put an American missile base in Ukraine, and we're taking it out. We'll take it out as soon as it appears. So how is that different from what I said before, which is just to swarm around the border of Ukraine and say exactly the same thing in the first place and not even go in? Because nobody believes it until you Mm. do it. (laughs) The Russians taught the Americans that the Russians will accept provocations forever. And so they finally had to stop that because they found out the negotiations never led anywhere and they were simply encouraging provocations. I've been telling them that in my articles for years. That's all you're achieving. I said, this is going to end in violence because you accept provocations. So, so you're, you're, you're predicting that they will eventually pull out of Ukraine, but they will peacekeep in the Donbass. They will retain, of course, Crimea, yeah. but they will pull out of the rest of Ukraine and just basically police that from the other side of the border, saying this has to stay as neutral, otherwise we hit everything again. They're not in western Ukraine. No, but they're bombing, as you said yourself. They took out three Mm. NATO bases Mm -hmm. that should not have been there. In fact, they told them 
Don't do that. We've told you what happens to people who are interfering in our action. And so everybody would believe it. Oh, they wouldn't do that. There's British here, the Americans here. They won't do that. Uh, Yeah, well, they did it. So Mm. they've got to establish there's a red line in order to stop the provocations. Mm. Here's the outcome, in my opinion. Okay. Ukraine will be demilitarized and it will uh, be a neutral state. And Donbass will be independent or eventually may again be part of Russia. Mm. And the only question is whether the entire Ukrainian Black Sea coast remains in Russian hands. I don't know. Mm. That's up to how Russia judges the West's response. And Crimea stays Russian. There's no chance of that being given back. Well, you see, when Belarus is liberated, there's again the land bridge to Crimea. Uh, Belarus, I don't mean Belarus. When the, no. when the independent Donetsk. republics, the Donbass, is liberated, yeah. the land bridge from Crimea to Russia is back. And that completely alters the strategic component. I, mm. If the Russians are sensible and don't feel like they have to uh, give away more, uh, they'll simply... Uh, turn the Black Sea into uh, our sea, like the Romans did the Mediterranean. It's our sea. You, know, you rest and you get out, period. There's no one else allowed in. Hmm. And that's easily within their means. They can do that if they want to. And there's nobody can do anything about it. And they get to keep the gas that's there that's as well, don't they? Gas. Trillions of cubic meters of gas underneath the Black Sea that uh, yeah. Ukraine well, won't get access to. I mean, how, how, do we, how do we get there? I mean, you say that's how you believe this is how it will end up. But with all the talk in the West of, you know, and Biden talking about all these hundreds of billions of dollars and troops being put on the border and military assistance being provided, if that's continuing, then how does this ever stop? Is it Ron Paul said something like the US is fighting down to the last Ukrainian? Uh, Well, that's already happened. How are these weapons going to get through the Russian lines to the Ukrainians? They're all surrounded. As soon as the weapons reach Ukraine, they're going to be blown up, just like the three bases were last week. How do the weapons that Biden goes on and on about reach the encircled, trapped Ukrainian forces? Hmm. If you send them jet fighters, what airfields are they going to fly them off of? They're all destroyed. Where are the pilots? It's just talk to pretend that there's a war going on. You see, Biden needs a war going on because they're facing congressional elections in which the Democrats are likely to be wiped out. Mm. But a war, oh, everybody favors the president. Oh, So if you listen to the American media, you would think the United States is in the middle of this war fighting it. <laughs> right. that's, yeah. that's what all of this talk about the billions of dollars and the weapons and NATO and troops, and but mm. it's not real. Again, there's no way for the weapons to get to the encircled Ukrainian defeated forces. So how does the West back down without losing face? How are they going to lose face? Who's going to tell them? The media is completely under Washington's thumb. What is the media ever challenged? So what's going to happen then is the solution that you predict, a neutral Ukraine, but that is going to be crafted as a narrative in the West as some kind of Western victory. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Okay. That's exactly it. It's, it'll be crafted as a Western victory. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just think about the, the, the victories are already crafted. Mm. Secretary of Defense, just the other day, you said the Russians are defeated. And we've had the, the media reporting, oh, the Russian uh, troops are surrendering in mass because they're starving to death. There's no food for them. They have to, right. They're appealing to the, Iranian, the Ukrainians to accept their surrender so they can get something to eat. These things are in the Western media constantly. Well, mm. then how come all the Ukrainian forces are surrounded? How come there's no Ukrainian Navy, no Ukrainian Air Force? You know, so the West can create whatever narrative it wants because there's no press to counter it. So in a sense, from the point of view, you know, of the concerns about nuclear war, which, of course, is not a good outcome for anybody, well, to put it mildly, we're actually looking at quite a hopeful situation from that perspective in that we might have a situation that will satisfy Vladimir Putin but also a situation that will sort of placate the West and then they'll work to save face and will score a propaganda victory in showing just how it worked out for them after all. And so maybe we might actually have peace in that region rather than nuclear war. Uh, yeah, if the provocation stopped. Yeah. For years I've said the Russians should simply turn their back on the West and develop their relationships in Asia and with China. And that looks like what is going to happen because of the sanctions. This may happen. It'll make Europe a lot poorer. Mm. You know, the cost of everything is going up. Yes. I think the West essentially disappear. It doesn't respect its own borders. Why is it worried about Ukraine's? The United States border with uh, Mexico is wide open. They wanted to impeach a president for protecting the border. Trump is evil. It's a human rights violation not to let people overrun your country. This is the position here in the United States of the Democratic Party. Today, illegal aliens are allowed to vote in New York City. Oh, gosh, there's another conversation. Um, what I'm hmm. sure here is the West, for all practical purposes, has lost a belief in its own values. And of course, this this is what is said. This is this is what is said that, that because of this, this is what Putin has exploited. He's seen the weakness of the West in various dimensions. It took him on. Sorry. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I'm saying this is what is often said, isn't it? Well, that the West is hollowing itself out in, in terms of its beliefs, in terms of its actions, and therefore Putin has seen his opportunity to jump in and to make his mark. Well, what did he jump in to do? He's missed every opportunity to jump in. Uh, he finally intervened in Ukraine because uh, the Americans wouldn't let the Ukrainians stop shelling the Donbass Russians. And the Americans were going to put Ukraine in NATO and have more missile bases on Russia's border. Now, is this jumping in or is this an act of self-preservation? It's an act of self-preservation. Now, I don't say all this because I am pro-Russian. I say it because... That is what you're accused of, of course, isn't it? You are accused of being pro-Putin. Anybody who tells the truth about anything <laughs> is accused of something. You said yourself, the famous doctor mm. is said to be a quack because he would, didn't agree Absolutely. with COVID protocols. Yep. So if you don't agree with the narrative... You're evil and yeah. wrong. Yeah. We know that. 
but some of us continue to talk anyhow. But my concern is that the provocations will drive the nuclear war. You can't have these provocations. My hope was what the BBC guy said. It's hard to believe there's anybody that intelligent at the BBC. (laughs) He said, oh, what Putin needed was a quick victory. Well, that's right, because that would have stopped the three weeks of psyops and propaganda. It would have shocked Europe that, hey, we better rethink their request for a security guarantee because we don't want any more of that. There's nothing we can do about it. And what if Poland's next? And then NATO says to the Washington, hey, look, we've been your enabler for longer than we should have been, and we're not going to do it anymore because it's going to lead to a major confrontation, and we will be the victims. So that's my interest, my position in this, is to stop the progression toward nuclear war of endless provocations of Russia. This is insane. This is an act of insanity to force peoples back to the wall so that they recourse to nuclear weapons. This is very clear to me. Over the years that we've spoken on various issues related to this, really, that one of your key intentions in the things that you say, the messages that you give, is precisely to warn against this threat of nuclear war. And you clearly continue to be concerned that we're on the brink of this. But this threat has been there for decades, hasn't it? And yet it hasn't happened. You know, we could look back to the Cuban Missile Crisis where we're on the brink of nuclear Armageddon then. And you you sometimes mention this Russian submariner whose presence of mind stopped the button being pressed. You know, all those years ago, we've been in this situation for decades, haven't we? And yet it doesn't happen. But wait a minute, we haven't been in this situation for decades. We were in a totally different situation. Mm -hmm. President Kennedy and Khrushchev saw and got together and stopped it. And we made a deal. Kennedy said, you take the missiles out of Cuba and I'll take the ones that we have in Turkey out of Turkey. Mm. So we'll get get our missiles off your border and you get your missiles off our border. And that was the deal. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. This is James Douglas's book. I actually read about that, Jeff Kennedy, mm-hmm. Unspeakable, um, a remarkable, yeah. remarkable book. And every presidential administration since, all the way up through George Herbert Walker Bush, worked to reduce tensions, not to mm-hmm. provoke tensions. Oh. You may remember Nixon gave us SALT 1, SALT 2. He opened mm-hmm. China to stop those tensions. Oh. He gave us, uh, I forget what else Nixon, he had three major things. Reagan worked to end the Cold War. I was part of it. He worked to end it. It's been brought back. And it's, it's been brought back. Yeah. All the accomplishments yeah. of all those regimes, President Carter's accomplishments as well, they were all shredded in the 21st century. It began with... Uh, well, Clinton, the very last years of the 20th, moving NATO to Russia's border. Then we had George W. Bush repudiating the various treaties and agreements and not renewing them and pulling out of the ABM treaty and the Intermediate Nuclear Missile Treaty. And all of this was American initiated. 
And it was all initiated because the collapse of the Soviet Union had given the American neoconservatives the idea they could establish American hegemony over the world because the Soviet constraint was gone. And this is the reason all of this has happened. And they don't want to give up this goal. And so Russia is in the way. So, well, we get rid of Russia. How do we do it? We destabilize her. They hope that somehow they're going to stir up opposition to Putin inside Russia. Hmm. And if not, we'll keep so much pressure on them that they can't develop. They can't focus on their own problems because they got to focus on Georgia and Ukraine and Kazakhstan and wherever else. And now they're talking about putting Finland in NATO. Yep. The Russians are not going to stand for that. Absolutely. They know in, we know in advance the hmm. Russians are not going to stand for Finland being in NATO. Hmm. So it's constant, you know, it's, it's trying to remove the Russian constraint on unilateral action. And that is going to lead to the nuclear war. And NATO's sin, Europe's sin, the British sin, is they enable all of this. So even if the situation in Ukraine goes to neutrality, you're saying that it's just going to happen somewhere else on Russia's border. They're just going to carry on doing Washington's intent. Provocation from somewhere else. My view is if Russia had been far more decisive it wouldn't be Europe's intent. Finland wouldn't have any idea of joining NATO. But it's the fact that they've, we've had all these weeks of psyops against Russia and, and, and the news are creating the image that the Russian military is really not formidable at all and it's defeated and, and so on and so on. Then that emboldens people. They don't see the threat. So all of a sudden, Finland wants to join NATO. And they wouldn't have wanted to join NATO if Russia had taken Ukraine out in three days, all of it, the whole thing out. (laughs) Nobody would be wanting to join NATO. The people in NATO would be wanting to get out. So in that sense, the Russians missed an opportunity. And so now I don't know how the world, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out and how the European countries are going to see it, whether they're going to say, well, the Russians are all that formidable after That's, all, yeah. or they're just enough of a threat that we, and they're not all that formidable, so there's no cost to me of joining NATO. Are they going to play it like this is now going to be Putin's Afghanistan or his Vietnam and just go on and on and on for years with body bags going home and then yeah. destabilizing yeah. Russia so that Putin goes? No, it's not going to go on and on. I can guarantee you that. It'll go on until the Russians decide they don't have any alternative but to end it. So they don't want to blow up these cities because then they have to rebuild them. They don't want to kill all these people because they want to live in peace with them. They want to get rid of the Nazi elements and they want to demilitarize Ukraine and block any notion it'll ever be in NATO. That's all they want to do. Now, if they do this with enough convincing force and enough enforcement of red lines, then it may reduce Europe's willingness to go along with all of the American provocations. And if they don't, then yes, there'll be more provocations until sooner or later the Russians learn they've really got to slap somebody down hard before it reaches the point of nuclear war. 
And finally, poof, there it goes. Yeah. And again, this is happening because the Soviet collapse removed the constraint on Washington hegemony. The neoconservatives want that hegemony. Yeah, it takes us full circle to what we said very near the beginning of this conversation, that that's what Putin meant when he lamented the yeah. end of the Soviet Union. Yeah. It was not an ideological thing. The yes, the of a constraint yes. on yeah. American unilateralism and yeah. therefore by encouraging this kind of ongoing conflict. It makes sense. Well, as always, a very sobering conversation with you, Dr. Roberts, very informative. You have a great deal of experience, a great deal of knowledge and understanding of these things. So I am very grateful for your input into our understanding here at the program. Um, uh, we will be speaking to other voices as well. And so it will be interesting to see how those voices contrast or indeed maybe agree on various points. But I, I'm very, very grateful to you for your input. Um, good to speak to you again after all these years. So just before closing, I will direct people, of course, to your website, which is paulcraigroberts.org. Org, where you are constantly writing articles, are you not particularly on this theme at the moment? Um, is it every day you're producing something, I believe? Well, most days, sometimes two or three articles, but yeah. some days just guest columns from others. Mm. Um, it's um, a website. Uh, it's getting more and more difficult because information sources are closing down. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. valid ones. I don't mean the BBC and the New York Times and CNN. No. Uh, but whatever they say is useless uh, because it's not true. <laughs> they're cre they've got a narrative. They're, cre they're creating. Look, here's what's happening in the West. Uh, lies are being turned into truth and fiction is being turned into fact. And that's the Western world. And it's becoming harder and harder to challenge that. And yes, it's becoming yes. more and more dangerous challenging because... If you don't accept the narrative and support it, it means you are a traitor. You are a Russian agent. You are a domestic terrorist. And so the whole notion of disputing and arguing and trying to get at the truth, this is no longer operative in the Western world. Hmm. It's not even in the universities. Open debate is no longer permitted in American universities. You can only say the approved things. Otherwise, you're out. Yeah. And so this is why I am really concerned about nuclear war, because it makes it much easier to happen. I don't think many people understand that the constant provocation of Russia is going to cause us a no. nuclear war. I don't think they understand that. I don't think any of the leaders even understand it. But it's getting where if I say that, it means I'm a Russian agent. I'm going to have the FBI knocking on the door, literally interviewing me about how much are you being paid to give Russian propaganda. I mean, the world of truth is being squashed out. Well, talking about universities, Professor Mearsheimer, who I mentioned earlier on, um, I came across a tweet somewhere about a, a bunch of students at his university calling for the University of Chicago to investigate him for Russian connections, for Russian funding, yeah. just because he, he right. had the wrong view. That's <laughs> it's it. incredible. That, that, that's it. Yeah. And um, so, you know, how much longer my website can mm. exist? I don't know. Yeah. I'm surprised that it hasn't been shut down. <laughs> I have no, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't see it. 
Well, in the meantime, you're still there, and I encourage people to, to go and look at what you write. Um, so thank you very much again, Dr. Roberts, for coming on. As I say, sobering, but you know, there's a reality, and uh, what else can we do? We need to think these things through. We need to face the reality that's there and uh, keep sane. Okay. <laughs> so thank you very much indeed for coming on. Well, well, thank you, Julian, and I support all your efforts. Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakov, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.